0: If you can go to Habakkuk chapter 3, we're wrapping this thing up today. Uh, For some of you, it's probably like, praise God, it's over. Um, Some of you are like, maybe, hopefully, I wish we spent more time here. Uh, But Habakkuk is not an easy place to spend time, and I I understand that. But the Word of God does not always tickle our ears and tickle our fancies. Uh, Oftentimes, it challenges us. And uh, today is one of those passages. So um, let's read. This is, uh, for, for context sake, this is the last part of Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3. Uh, so it's connected to what we did last week, uh, but there is a shift uh, that, is, that takes place in terms of um, moving from who God is to his response in this last section. That's why I separated it. I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is to the choir master with stringed, instruments. Uh, So this was a prayer that was sung by God's people. Let's pray. Father, bless us and keep us by your word proclaimed, understood, and believed. May those who believe know that your face shines upon them, that you are gracious to them. Turn toward us and give us peace, though our lives may be filled with turmoil and conflict. Express your great and abiding love to your people in Christ Jesus. Amen. I was in high school, I was in college, when uh, I first heard this song from a band I didn't know about that would become one of my favorite bands in the late 80s and early 90s. It's not an exciting song. I mean, uh, not an uh, encouraging song, because it begins like this. I've been in a cave for 40 days, only a spark to light my way. I want to give out. I want to give in. This is our crime. This is our sin. Flat on my back, out at sea, hoping these waves don't cover me. I'm turned and tossed upon the waves. When the darkness comes, I feel the grave. And yet, the chorus of the song is, I Still Believe, which is actually the name of the song. It's a song uh, about what I'm going to call today, Mature Faith, which is a faith that stands in the midst of hardship And if we look at the book of Habakkuk as he begins with this complaining uh, to God about what's going on, I think where he ends up after all of this struggling with God, okay, as trying to understand the justice of God, I believe that he ends up in this place of what I'm calling mature faith. The the faith that could not stand when he was younger, uh, that was almost overturned by the difficulties that he was experiencing, now has a very different character. He has deepened in his faith. And I think there's something important for us to grasp and understand as we think about our faith and how God is going to mature it. And really the question is, what does this deepened, mature faith look like when life is hard? What does mature faith look like? because that is the direction we want to be moving in by the grace of God. As I mentioned, Habakkuk's prayer shifts from uh, this exalted view of God as the, as the great warrior back to his personal response. And so as we look at this prayer as a whole, we should see a couple things. For those of you who are in uh, two of the, stu- the community groups uh, that are studying relational wisdom, we should see God-awareness. Okay, Habakkuk is aware of who God is and how that impacts his situation, but we also see now uh, there's a a self-awareness that Habakkuk has in light of who God is. He's honest about what's going on inside him. He knows what is going on, and he expresses it. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver, My legs tremble. He's speaking as one who is visibly shaken. He hears uh, the vision or he has received this vision and he's coming undone at the reality of the vision because he knows that God's word is true, that God, God does not lie to him. And he knows that this is coming and it's not happy, happy, joy, joy, but rather, he's afraid. He's trembling. He's quaking. He's, in a sense, uh, there's some uncontrollable responses that are taking up a place within his body. He notes, he notes for us that rottenness has entered my bones. In other words, I'm not able to stand. I'm weak. I'm frail. One of the realities about mature faith is that it can be honest about our initial response to God's hard words and God's providence. He's not hiding from us or from God that this is difficult for him to grapple with that this news is not necessarily welcomed by him, but it indeed fills him with a great amount of fear. It shows us that bad news will come to us, that at times it hits us like a ton of bricks, and faith does not make us immune to that. But it does shape how we respond to that. For instance, I have a friend who has struggled with melanoma for a couple of years, and it has, uh, had spread to his liver. And so he was taking some uh, chemotherapy, and a couple weeks ago, uh, probably a week and a half ago, he underwent uh, a procedure to remove some of the lesions on his liver, as well as to uh, check a new spot that had emerged on his head. And when he came to, after the surgery, they uh, informed him that there were a number of lesions that the scans did not pick up on his liver. The implication being, it's only a matter of time. I'm not sure what David did when he first heard that. Um, Not completely unexpected. But when he told the rest of us, he was like, I think God can heal me. I'm trusting God to do that. And so mature faith is not rocked, but neither is it blind to the realities of the hardship that is coming. Faith, mature faith does not mean that we necessarily immediately kiss the rod that strikes us as Sarah Edwards wrote to her daughter, famously, at the death of her husband Jonathan. Okay? But we do see a contrast here that Habakkuk mentions. Okay, he, I'm trembling, I'm quaking, my lips can't even move right, yet I will quietly wait. This includes the idea of resting. He's not running away. He's not going and hiding. He's going to stay and he's going to face the uncertain and dangerous future that is coming upon him. He's going to wait for it. How can you wait and rest when the day of trouble approaches like a cyclone bomb, as they described the storm that went through the Midwest last week. Or perhaps, in light of some of the news we've gotten this past week, when the rivers are rising and there seems to be no end in sight, and you're not sure how far they are going to rise and will they destroy your house, your fields. How do you stand? How do you wait? Habakkuk here likely is resting in God's promise to Abraham, which is the foundation for everything that comes in the the rest of the Old Testament, as well as the New, this promise that I will be their God and they will be my people. This has to be the backbone, the foundation on which Habakkuk is standing as he sees this, as he trembles, and as he quakes, and he remembers, we are are His people. He has promised us His love. And He will bring it. Even though all of this looks scary to me right now. And we remember from passages like Galatians that in Christ, God takes all who, are, who believe as Abraham's sons that we are in fact His people. And He is our God. Despite what we might be experiencing, but despite our circumstances, we are intended to rest in the knowledge that we are His people. He is our God. We see this in places like Ephesians 1, where we, say, we hear that in love we have been chosen or predestined for adoption as sons. And so we recognize that perfect or mature love casts out the fear that can be caused by difficult times. We're not being punished. We're not being destroyed. We're not being condemned. But this still is part of God's love for us. This is still uh, how God is going to be at work to make us who He wants us to be. If I could change what I saw on a meme recently. It initially put it in terms of religion and Christianity, but I'm going to put it in terms of faith and well fear and faith. When something bad happens, or we do something wrong rather, fear says, I hope Dad doesn't find out. Faith says, I need dad's help. And so if we think of what Jesus said, and there's a picture up here. Um, as, as right before the Olivet Discourse, he, Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem, and he says, I, I wish to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. And this is a picture of a, of a hen that has gathered its chick It's chicks. What's happening here? They are seeking shelter. They're resting from their fear in the presence of mom. And so now what ma- what's going on outside doesn't matter. And Jesus expresses that that's how he wants wanted Israel to be, to be safe. Like that, To be unconcerned with what was going on outside, and I believe that Jesus has that same desire for us, that when hard times come, we're resting in him, we're trusting in him, like those little chicks. We have found the place of safety where fear will not destroy us. So, one way, one, one aspect of mature faith is that it rests in Christ's love for us. Let's look at a second aspect of mature faith. Habakkuk begins to contemplate what the invasion will do to his community, but not just his community, it's also his life. It's not as though he will somehow remain in this perfect little bubble, unscathed by what the Babylonians are about to do to Judah. And he talks about the fig tree, the vines, and the olives, all of them failing. He's describing an agricultural collapse that is tied with worship, both true and false. The implication here being that there's no more fig and raisin cakes, which were often used in worship as well as the dinner dinner table. There's no more wine, which was used, sacrifices, as well as the dinner table. There's no more oil for the sacrifices or the dinner table. This is collapse. This is tragedy that he's describing. But it's not just affecting the the trees and the vines, but we see it also affects the fields, the flock, the herd. There's not going to be any more grain. There's going to be no more milk. There's going to be no more meat. Those supplies are gone. And so he's describing, in many ways, essentially a complete economic collapse for an agrarian society that is prompted by the war that is coming. Something similar is described in the annals of uh, Thutmose III, one of those Pharaoh's guys, you know. He He says, well, it's in his annals. He didn't write it, his scribe did. Now, His Majesty destroyed the town of Ardata with its grain, all its pleasant trees were cut down. The army overflowed with its possessions. And so they took everything that could be taken from this town as they ravaged it and brought it into submission to Pharaoh. And that's the same thing that Babylon was going to do to Judah and Jerusalem. It's not just historical stuff, not just... Back then, these sorts of things happened. I remember 2007 when Cornerstone Church closed. It was at the beginning of a recession. Isn't that awesome? Being a pastor looking for a new call when you know there's a recession and ain't nobody going to leave their pastorate. (laughs) And there aren't going to be new churches planted and all that kind of stuff for years. There would be few opportunities that would present themselves. That's the wrong time for a church to go down. And yet that was the time in God's providence. And so Habakkuk sees the, the economic struggle and strife that's coming for Jerusalem, for Judah, and for himself. And there's another contrast. Same time, same word, yet. 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 I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, hardship couldn't stop Habakkuk from rejoicing. It couldn't stop him from finding his joy in God. He's not rejoicing in his circumstances, but he is rejoicing in the God of his salvation. And that's an important distinction. It's not, yay, destruction, But God is still my God, and he has still saved me, and I am his. That's what he is taking joy in. It's similar to to what we find in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, not just when it's going well for you, but also when it's going really bad for you, because you're rejoicing in the Lord himself, who is the fount of all blessing and who has blessed you in the past and will bless you in the future, even though right now might not be so great. You're rejoicing in Him. It's similar to Job at the end of Job chapter 1 when his family, his flocks, and everything else, all of his wealth is gone and destroyed. And he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says that he did not sin in this. He continued... To rejoice in his God. There are times that God removes all our earthly hopes, all our earthly comforts, so that Jesus will, in fact, be our hope, our comfort, our joy. That's hard to hear, it's harder to experience. But he does this because we have a nasty habit of looking for our joy in other things. And and looking for our joy, our hope rather, in other things. And trying to say, I need Jesus and this to be happy. Reminds me of uh, near the end of... That Steve Martin movie, the jerk all I need is this remote control, and he can't even turn around all I need is this remote control and this chair all I need is this remote control and this chair and this pen oh I mean he he and he stumbles out of the room he he was incredibly wealthy and he's lost it all, and now he's just trying to take some things that he thinks he needs, and and he's walking around with his uh, old overcoat, shuffling around with all of these things in his hands. All I need. That's what we do. (laughs) He's a picture of us. All we need is Jesus and these 500 of the things. And God says, no, all you need is me. And so sometimes he brings us through hardship so that we learn that lesson, so we experience that truth. It's not just intellectual, but it sinks down deep into our hearts. Romans 8 reminds us that God did not spare his son, but gave him for us, and therefore he will give us all that we need. That God's heart is not against us precisely because he gave his son for us. And so we can trust him uh, that He's not going to withhold anything that we really need. John Newton kind of put it this way. All that happens is needful, and nothing withheld is necessary. That's a strong view of God's providence. And that is the view of God's providence that we should have that's reflected in Romans 8.28 that God is working it out. He's working these things, even these hard things, for good so that we become more and more like Jesus. We become holy people. And so mature faith sees Jesus as more and more of our treasure. It recognizes that less and less of this other stuff is necessary for us to be happy, for us to be content. It points to uh, we're, we're, we're... experientially understanding the sufficiency of Christ. In other words, salvation does not mean the lack of hardship, It does not mean the lack of suffering, it does not even mean the lack of death. But it means that Jesus is with us in all of them. There was a missionary by the name of Captain Alan Gardner He was a missionary to Tierra del Fuego in the 19th century. There was a particularly harsh winter, and he and his six companions uh, went to find some refuge in a cave. While they were there, they all starved to death. But at the entrance to the cave... Uh, the people who came after him found, scrawled out this, my soul still trusts upon God. They found his diary, and the last entry of his diary is, I know not how to thank God for his marvelous loving kindness. This is a man who is starving to death. Who is experiencing precisely what Habakkuk was looking forward to. And like Habakkuk, he cannot but express praise to God. He's still rejoicing even though he knows he's dying. That's mature faith. That takes time. And so mature faith rejoices in Christ's love. Let's look at a third aspect of mature faith. Habakkuk, as we kind of process what he says in these last few verses, Habakkuk is weak, he's trembling, he's facing famine. Uh, And as John Newton, God doesn't just tell us that we're weak, God makes us experience and feel the reality of our weakness. And it's in the midst of that that Habakkuk says, God the Lord is my strength. He strengthens him. He has no strength of his own. It's been sapped by fear. It's been sapped by famine. But he knows that God will strengthen him. It reflects what we see in Psalm 138. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. It anticipates what Paul is going to write in Philippians chapter 4 because he's learned how to be content, whether with plenty or in want. And he says, I can do all things, meaning live in those circumstances, through him who strengthens me. And so, this mature faith that Habakkuk has recognizes that the only way I'm going to stand in the midst of these trials is because God strengthens me. I don't have the strength of myself to stand firm, but He will strengthen me. And so, he anticipates something of the boasts of Paul. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Because he recognizes that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Weak. It's only when we're weak that we begin to depend upon Christ. It's only when we're weak when we begin to look to Him to strengthen us. It's only when we're weak that He is our only joy. We're not rejoicing in ourselves and our accomplishments. And then we find that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We look to one who became weak for us. His love was a display of weakness, not of power. Because his love was displayed in his going to the cross. His love was displayed in being um, insulted and not striking back, persecuted and not threatening. His love was revealed in weakness the trembling under the cross that he carried and being nailed and unable to move to an instrument of torture. This is the one who then comes to strengthen us. He, this is the one who invites us to embrace our weakness, the one who says, don't be afraid of it. I will be with you there. In fact, you can boast of your weakness to receive the sufficiency of my grace. Part of how Habakkuk describes this is that he makes my feet like the deer's. I tread on my high places. There's something about him steadying us. I'll give Matt a second here. There we go. I was, I was mesmerized uh, a couple weeks ago, because my kids were watching a video uh, movie, science thing, that had things like the Ibex here. And I don't know how these things do it. They're walking on steep cliffs. They're almost 90 degrees. And they, f- they somehow go quickly from foothold to foothold up and down this silly mountain. You know, because the predators are down below, and so, you know, and every time a predator shows up, back up the mountain, they go, and I don't know how they do this. You know, if it's me, I'm, like, clinging, uh, you know, scared and ready to fall off. You know, I can't be doing this stuff. Uh, I can't even get close to the edge of the Grand Canyon, okay? You know, they're living on the edge of the Grand Canyon, running around, doo That's, that is what Habakkuk's describing, This animal, which is not in fear for its life, but is steadied by God, is kept by God on this cliff in the midst of danger and precarious places. And he's able to move around, exist, live, and thrive. And so Habakkuk anticipates being able to thrive despite the fact that his circumstances are going to be far less than ideal. He's making him like an ibex. We see this reflected as well in Psalm 18. He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure in the heights. This is in the heights. It's in a scary place, but it's secure. steadied by God. This Babylonian invasion is going to put Habakkuk in a precarious position, but God is going to steady him and sustain him. Your trials will put you in precarious places where you are fearing for the future. And it is only the gospel hope that we have that can steady us upon these preterous cliffs. Christopher Ruan noted in his book that uh, talks about his journey from um, prison because he was a homosexual who sold drugs and ended up in jail. And his mom and then dad started praying for him because they became Christians and how um, Christ found him in the prison. He says this, God's faithfulness is proved not by the elimination of hardships, but by carrying us through them. Change is not the absence of struggles. Change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. So a mature enough faith is one that is choosing holiness in the midst of trial. Choosing to trust, not to run away, choosing to bless or praise God, not to curse God, choosing to rest instead of run. We see in Romans 8 at the very end, Paul is convinced that we are secure in God's love, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because of what Christ has done for us. And he mentions some things, not height nor depth, you know, not cliffs like the Ibex, not famine. None of these things can separate us. And so, part of what a mature faith does is that it measures God's love by the cross and not our circumstances. Immature faith is prone to measure God's love by circumstances. It's almost like you know when you were a kid and you're pulling the, the the petals off the flower. He loves me. He loves me not. Oh, it's a good day. Everything went right for me. God loves me. Oh, it's a lousy day. God must hate me. Oh, good day. He loves me. Bad day. He hates me. Immature faith does that and drives itself crazy. <laughs> His love is not to be measured by our circumstances. It's to be measured by the cross. Regardless of our circumstances. I know that though life stinks, He loves me because He gave Himself for me. Always going back to the cross of Christ to know our worth, our value to God our security in Christ. Don't look to your circumstances. Look to the cross for this. And so mature faith is sure we're secure in Christ's love. So whether you're in a cave for 40 days, whether you're starving to death in the cold winter, whether you're out on your back at sea hoping the waves don't cover you, you can still believe. And that is because the cross reveals the love of God for you and that Jesus was willing to die a miserable death, experiencing the wrath of God for his people to deliver you from your sins and your transgressions. Mature faith sees God's love there, not in our changing circumstances. Therefore, we're able to rest. Therefore, we're able to rejoice. We are sure that we are secure and we're strengthened to face the hardships that God designed to make us holy. And that brings us to the end of Habakkuk. But may Habakkuk not be done with us. Let's pray. Father, Help us to learn not just intellectually but also experientially. Continue to teach us what Habakkuk learned, so that that we're mature of faith too. But we we recognize that like with Habakkuk it, it, it didn't come easy that it was born of struggle, it was born of conflict, and help us to stay with you in the midst of that conflict until our our faith matures and deepens. Help us to be a people of mature faith, who are, in fact, continually looking to the cross, uh, who are measuring your love for us by that and not how many trinkets we might have. Continue to change us and transform us, because we're not there yet. We thank you that you don't give up on us, but that your patience is displayed marvelously as you slowly work to make us more and more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.